Today's message is a bit of a prelude for one I intend to give later, and in a particular passage in Philippians that I was just drawn to for a number of months and been working on and sharing a little bit of it with Pastor Tony of what I intend to do with that. But in examining that passage, I need to go back a little further in Philippians to what precedes it. Paul gives us, in what we in the biblical studies field, a particular model of how he explains the nature of God in the indicative imperative model. God does first a set of things, the indicative, what God has done for us, and then the imperative, the command that we are to follow, not because God said so, but because also God has done so much for us. And in order to set up the imperative that we're going to be looking at at a later date, we need to go back and look at the indicative of what God has particularly done for us. In this case, we're going to be focusing on the Son, on Jesus Christ, and the genuine example of his humility. And in our passage today, we're going to be looking at Philippians 5, I mean Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And it begins with these words. Let this mind be in you. Now, what kind of mind are we talking about? If you remember back to when we began our service, in the first five verses of Philippians 2, actually in the verse 4, we see that call for unity through humility, in which Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy, if these are the feelings, are the attitudes that we ourselves claim to have as Christians, and I believe we do, then Paul tells us to do the following. To be like-minded, have the same love, and of being of one accord. And he goes on to say of what we are not to be like. And the, ultimate, and the example of that is to look, to consider the interests of others more than the interest of yourself. To do things not out of gain for personal self, but how we can best serve others. And in this way, Paul gives us a brief outline in these first three verses where we have the claim in verse 1, that attitude that if we say that we have, the call, the action in verse 2 of what we are to do, and coaching. And I chose coaching because I was going, at this point, I stuck to the alliteration stick, so I had to kind of go on to it, so bear with me. Or he instructs us of how we are to carry this out. But doesn't that seem a bit difficult? That I am to consider the needs of those around me before myself. That goes against what many of us see in society, where they say, consider your, put your own needs first, your own identity first. And the world should accommodate your needs, not you be the servant. So that's a difficult saying 
in our day. And in Paul's day too, that was a difficult saying, to try to get everyone to consider the interests of others before themselves. So he gives us an example. In fact, the ultimate example. And when he go, going back to verse five, where it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There is the example, the genuine example that we are to follow. But that can be quite difficult because isn't he perfect? Isn't he the son of God? Surely I cannot measure up to that. And really, he has all that power, all that ability. What has he really given up? Well, Paul continues on. In fact, he describes this in verse 6, continuing on. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. Now, we're going to dwell on those two verses for a little bit, and I want you to go with me and consider it. Where first, we are told that Jesus, who at first, who being in the form of God. Now, the Greek here, we're not going to go into the exact Greek word, but the form of describes the physical attributes of the thing, its function, and what it deserves. Right here, we have the form of a pulpit, form of cell phone, form of a book. It describes to us many things about it. Christ, then, is being described as being in the form of God, where he is physically the same as God. And that means eternally coexisting with God from the beginning, having the same abilities and authorities of God, and deserving of the same honor as God. And he did not consider it, when it says it did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, he by no means letting the world know that he is of God and from God in the same form of God. It is not insulting upon God's honor, upon any of God's deserved honor, his authority, to be considered the same as God. But in verse 7, it tells us, he made himself of no reputation. So the deserved honor of God. In fact, if we were to go back 200 years ago, we could use the analogy of kings. But we've been so long without a king in this country that we don't know exactly what that means anymore. But the king is one deserving of honor in, in a monarch, monarchical society. And that includes the trappings of office, the royal robe, the scepter, the throne, the appropriate honor given to one, the deference. Those are all that the Jews in Paul's era, and many would say of divine beings that in Paul's era, are owed to one such as who has the power or the form of God. Jesus had all those, but he chose to make himself one of having no reputation that deserved honor that should be owed to him 
he is going to lay aside. Not only that, he is going to come, they say, in the form of a bondservant that the New King James uses, but the Greek word here more accurately translates to slave. He is not only going to give up his deserved reputation, his ability, but his own self-will. By becoming a slave, he is surrendering his own choice to determine his own fate, his own actions in his own life. And then come in the likeness of man. Not only is he giving up his deserved honor, his ability, his authority, but now he is it tells us that he is going, that he came with all the physical limitations of an average human. Now, this is the incarnation of Christ, the beginning of the genuine example of his humility. But then it continues on in verse 8. And he, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Now it's interesting that first line in verse 8, and being found in the appearance of man. Those who saw him walking on the earth in the first century acknowledged, yes, that is a man named Jesus. In fact, historians today, you'll find very few that argue that a man named Jesus didn't exist. In fact, they're very clear. There was a first century man born in the Israel region whose name was Jesus. He had a following. And it raised such a concern among the Romans that he was crucified. And that led to the movement that, his, that modern historians say is Christianity. They acknowledged that, in fact, he did exist. And, in Je and furthermore, going on, Jesus made himself subject while being in the physical form of man to first God's laws. The laws of Moses, that, the laws that were given to Moses, Jesus willingly made himself subject to. We go back to him being, remember, coming in the form of a slave. Not only that, but on occasion, he made himself subject to man's interpretation of God's law. Now, not when it went against God's law, but they came up with some interesting interpretations in the time of Jesus of the application of the laws of Moses. And then at times, as well, he made himself subject to the laws of men. And when we think about that one, remember that at times Jesus had to pay his taxes. Although he had a very interesting way of going about it, I wish I could go fishing and pay my taxes that way, but I am not blessed with the spiritual gift of receiving taxes from fish. <laughs> but still, Jesus made himself subject to the laws of Rome that were required of him at the time. Jesus, by all measure, according to the people looking at him from the outside without really getting to know him, had to at least acknowledge that there was a man named Jesus who existed. 
but then it goes on, that he humbled himself. That even from this lowly state that he now assumed, he, did, he made himself even lower than just to be bound by the physical limitations of a human, to be in the form of a slave, being subject to the will of God, and laying aside his well-deserved heavenly reputation. He made himself lower. Remember now, his earthly station, and one of the best ways I heard to describe it comes from The Chosen, where Jesus is a homeless carpenter walking around the desert, preaching the kingdom of God is coming. And that was from his own mother in that particular series. And by first century logic, that they saw, that the earthly eyes of man saw him, that seems fairly accurate. He's just some homeless carpenter, as far as they saw. And that was the general earthly reception of him, except when he did miracles. Now, those were entertaining. And sometimes we got food out of it. And he was also had heaps and heaps of false condemnation laid upon him. They accused him of being a demon, of having the power of Satan, of being a rebellious leader of an uprising. And this he bore. At times he countered, but when he was brought before his trial, he was falsely accused of blasphemy, and the only charge that he would admit to is, yes, what you're saying is true. He is the Son of God. And then it goes on further, where it describes that he became obedient to the point of death, where he bore the particular punishment for what they said was blasphemy. And not only a normal death, but death on a cross. And we have talked before in detail of what that looks like. But what was it meant to symbolize? It was a spectacle for all to see. In fact, they did it on a hilltop so that no matter where you went, you could view the sight. It was meant to terrorize anyone who saw it. that this is what happens when you defy Rome, an agonizing death. It was also a dehumanizing death or a depersonifying death. That in both Roman and Jewish tradition, but we'll stick with the Jewish tradition, that they believed that one who dies the death of a cro on the cross is not a human. In fact, the one who dies a death on the cross, there is no way that that person could ever end up in paradise. God would never let a just person die in such a manner as that. That obviously if they did, well then God didn't love them. God considered them a sinner and unworthy. They are not a person when they die on that cross. So who cares about the way they die? That is the kind of death that Jesus bore, and the ultimate rejection of him in that death. That not only did they not acknowledge his deserved 
honor, and reputation as being equal to God, but they denied him even considering him a fellow human. And that, when we consider then the needs of others above ourselves that we, in those first four verses, of how difficult it is for us. View there now what Paul has said that Jesus had done, of the amount that he was willing to be abased himself to bring his reputation down for others, to go from the highest being in the pantheon of all, according to people at their times, the honor that they should have given to him to be considered less than that of a slave and not even a person. That is how low that man brought his reputation. But God, and here continues on, because we have one of the first therefores. The other therefore we're going to cover in a different sermon. But here we have, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above all names. Now that's an interesting thing when you think about it. God now, because of what Jesus has done, has his own call to action, his own response to the indicative to what Christ has done in this particular passage. And it says that God exalted him and honored him in recognition of the service of what God, Christ has done. And that God has given him the most exalted name. Now it's interesting when you look through the Bible of who God gives names to. Because it's not often that God gives a particular name to someone. He names Adam. He changes the name of Abraham, Abram, and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. He gives Jacob the name Israel. At times he commands his prophets specifically Hosea, to give his children certain names. And each of these names come with a meaning. Abraham becomes father of many to father of many nations. And there's a reason why God gives these particular names to people. And he gives a name to Jesus as well. Even God's own name has a particular meaning. The divine name of God, which... YHWH, without the bells, and it, in that particular one, it means I am. Basically, God described himself when Moses asked who we should call you. I am. I am that which I am. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is all that there is, all that Moses needs to know to tell the people of Israel about him. That is God's name. But then we have the name of Jesus, which translates to Savior. That in his name alone is the one who is the Savior, is the one who can forgive sins, is the one who has redeemed us, found uniquely in the Son. And not only that, but God can, but Paul continues on about what God has done. That 
starting in verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, at the name of Jesus, we're given three locations. We're first given heaven, all divine beings, and those in outer space. So people on the International Space Station or when that colony eventually gets set up on Mars, you don't get out of it. Those on the earth, all those who are currently alive, and all those under the earth, the dead, and even those who face judgment, will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But I want you to consider that for a moment, because in James even tells us that the demons believe in Jesus and fear his name. They know he is a man, they know he, and in their case, they know he is the Son of God. But they don't believe in him as far as salvation can save them. And there are many who join that cause. So when that day comes that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, on one hand, that seems like it will be a great day. Everyone acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I imagine there's going to be several people there that begrudgingly say so, that they're forced to admit a fact that is true, but they wish it wasn't. And then there's going, and sadness in knowing that they made the wrong choice, like the, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that the rich man knew that he screwed up, that he made the wrong choice, and the best he could hope for was maybe temporary relief from his suffering and begging God to send someone to tell his family, you don't want to come where I am. That on that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, you're going to have a large group of people that that's going to be one of the saddest confessions I imagine that they'll ever make. And in the minority, you're going to have a group of people that follow that statement, Jesus is Lord and my Savior. When they call and acknowledge the name that is exalted, the name that redeems, the name that saves. So when Paul then, when we go back to the beginning, tells us of this particular mind that we are to have, one that elevates the needs of others above ourselves, but also one that makes us join in one mind, in one love, in one fellowship. He asks this of us, not because it's impossible and that we have no way of fulfilling it, or through our own means that we could fulfill, because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, has done, it is certainly possible 
because of the Son. And because of what God has done, because of the Son. Now for you, today you have heard that at one point every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And certainly that's going to be an interesting day to see the divide there. Because you will have some sad people. You will have people that are doing begrudgingly. But then there's the ones full of false hope. That, Lord, did I not perform miracles in your name, cast out demons, do all these things for you? And God will say to them, Be gone. I never knew you. Now the interesting contrast there of everyone will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there are those that God says he will not know. Interesting contrast when you think about it. But then there's those that wonder, Lord, when were you naked? When were you in need? When were you cast out? And God and Jesus tells them, when you did it for these, for the least of these, you did it for me. And to those, those are the ones that Jesus says, I know you. You are my child. You are the ones that when every knee bowed, additionally responded that Jesus is Lord and my Savior, the one who saves. Now this is a great passage to look through because it's not one that those first four verses are utterly impossible, hopeless, asking perfection. It's not like the Pharisees taught the law of Moses where they went, well, unless you're born into the right class, do the right things, God has clearly cursed you. And you can never obtain perfection. You can never obtain what's required of you because, well, you're a sinner. Except for us. We somehow figured it out, is what the Pharisees would say. And the Sadducees, much of the same vein, just slightly different way of doing it. But Jesus, because of how he brought himself down to first humanity's level and then was willing to let them make him less, make him a non-person. We now have the capacity through Christ to live this mindset out. This mind that can be in us is also found in Christ because Christ dwells in us for those who have called upon his name. And then God exalted the Son because of what was done. That was the first, therefore. Next time, we're, and I don't know if it's next week or when exactly Pastor Tony and I are going to work this in, we're going to be looking at the therefore that will apply to us. And I look forward to that one because there's some fun things I see in that particular passage that I want to share with you about it. But there was no way to dwell on that particular one 
without fully appreciating the call that we are first, that Paul tells us to go to, the mindset that if we claim that we are Christians, how we should live, but then be reminded that we can do it because of what the Son has done and because what the Father has done, acknowledgement of the Son. Amen? Amen. We have one more... Annoying cell phone. We have one more song, but let us. I think we have, while the worship team gets ready, I think they're all here, but um, you can stay safe for a moment. We'll just close in prayer, and then we'll have our last song, and then you will all be dismissed after that. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage from Philippians, Lord. The message that you laid on Paul's heart, that even as he is in prison, writing these words of what he can really do, what advice he can give to the Philippian church where he exhorts them that if they claim to have love for one another, if they claim to have fellowship, if they claim to have affection and mercy, how they can are to be of one mind, one love, one faith. And this is not an impossible unobtainable task because of what your son has done for them. How he not only surrendered his authority, his ability, and his well-deserved honor, but he became a man. He became subject to your laws, to the laws of men as, they did not, as those that didn't violate your law, divine law. And he was made even lower, depersonified on that cross, Lord. But how, at his name now, we can have salvation. And Lord, that one day, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But not everyone will be able to make the claim that he is my Savior. And for those out here, Lord, for those listening online as well, who hear that, who hear about that day, and worry, am I going to be among those who say he is my Savior? It is not too late for them. Lord, for those now who are hearing this message, hearing from his son, hearing from Paul, talking about the Son, of what Jesus had done. Jesus is now calling to them. And your word says that, they, that even those who believe in his name can become children of God. And like the man who was blind that Jesus healed, belief in the Son when the Son calls is what is required. And Lord, for those who have not made that decision, who have not decided to answer your call as you have given to them. I ask, Lord, that you work on their hearts, that they would believe that it is the name of Jesus that saves us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you for this testimony given from Paul of what not only your son has done, but what you have done our Heavenly Father, because of 
the obedience of the Son and saving us, Lord, and making it possible for us to be of one love, one faith, and one mind. Thank you and praise you, O Lord, for the blessings that we have heard from your holy word. We ask, Lord, that you be blessed this time of fellowship that we have had together and keep us safe as we go throughout our week. And Lord, we especially want to lift up those who are standing by to deal with the wildfires that may result of this heat. And Lord, we ask that people be wise when the conditions are like this, to think of the needs of others and to be, and be with those who are putting the needs of others above themselves in dealing with their current weather conditions. We thank you and praise you, O Lord, and ask for their safety. And this we pray in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.